church in Thessalonica was a remarkable congregation of God's people. For eight weeks, we studied those things which made that congregation so special, not only in God's sight, but also in the sight of the Apostle Paul and Timothy and Silas and those who had worked with him as they had preached God's message to that congregation. We studied now 2 Thessalonians, and last week we looked at the church where problems come. And you know, when problems come, it's not a matter of if they will come, but when they come. And when you start looking at the kind of problems that arises in even good, great congregations, those problems may arise from the outside. There are those people who don't love God, they don't love us, they don't appreciate what we stand for, and last Sunday morning we looked at a persecuted church. This morning, we're going to study chapter 2, and I've titled it, A Vulnerable Church. And no one wants to admit their vulnerability. No one wants to admit that my faith may not be as strong as I thought it was. My knowledge of God's Word may not be as deep as I thought it was. My level of gullibility may not be as strong as I would hope that it would be. For just a moment or two, let me introduce our lesson. If you go to the book of Mark chapter 14, you find our Lord in the company of His apostles. He tells them all that they are going to fall and to be uh, scattered Peter is going to respond by saying, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, even this night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. You see, Peter stood up and said, Lord, I will not. I I assure you I will not. And yet, he did stumble. He did fall. I know that many of us would want to say, if I were put under the same pressure as Peter, I wouldn't stumble. I wouldn't fall. If you think that, you do not appreciate your own vulnerability. You see, the truth is, we're all susceptible to tricksters and deceivers. As you start going through the Bible, you can find passages like Ephesians 4, verse 14, that says, We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. That is, people who are constantly trying to persuade us about something. In fact, he talks about the wiles of the devil in chapter 6 and verse 11. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 2, Paul says, We've renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Or as you go to chapter 11 and verse 3, he said, I fear somehow lest the serpent deceived Eve by craftiness, your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. It'd be so easy for us to just simply think, 
Nobody can deceive me. Nobody can trick me. Paul in Colossians 2 and verse 4 says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. In chapter 2 verse 26 of 1 John, he said, I wrote these things to you concerning those who tried to deceive you. The church at Thessalonica was a great congregation of God's people. And yet, they were vulnerable to someone trying to deceive them and to try to trick them. But you see, there's also the issue of misunderstanding as well. Am I vulnerable to misunderstand you or you to misunderstand me? I can't tell you how many times that people have come out and said, I thought I heard you say, and I say, I don't think I said that. I didn't intend to say that if I did. But you see, sometimes if we're not careful and we're not listening careful enough, we will misunderstand. In the book of Hebrews chapter 5, he's been talking about how Jesus and Melchizedek are alike. And he says about him, he says he was called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he says something really interesting. Of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. It would be very easy for them to misunderstand what he was trying to say. Well, chapter 2 is to a congregation that to some degree has panicked. Because Paul had written to them about the coming of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13, and going even through chapter 5. He had warned them about the coming of the Lord, and yet some people evidently had gotten the idea, maybe we missed it. Did the Lord come and we didn't notice it? Did it pass us by? Well, Paul's going to provide some information He's going to provide some encouragement for these saints who have been panicked by this message. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to study chapter 2. I'm going to have to move swiftly through some of it, but we're going to look first of all at the determined day in verses 1 through 3. Micah just read for us a few moments ago from verses 1 through 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 to begin with. Then beginning with verse 4, going through verse 12, we'll look at this digression that God said is going to come and He's going to describe it in detail. And then finally, the devout believers are going to be delivered in verses 13 through 17. Let's go back to that passage and read it with me either in your Bible or on the screen as we go through this. And I'm going to try to emphasize some important words as we go through this section. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. 
Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now I want you to observe with me. It's always possible for a person to be misunderstood. And that is especially true when you have no frame of reference to be able to understand what he's talking about. Sometimes people begin talking about things which I know nothing about. And when they do, I easily misunderstand what they're saying because I don't have any frame of reference to compare it. That's the reason why when the Bible talks about things in eternity, it uses figures of speech so we can be able to understand. But I've never been to eternity. I've never seen what heaven will be like. I I can't necessarily see what judgment will be exactly like because I don't have any frame of reference other than the descriptions given to me. It's easy to be misunderstood when you use figurative language as well. Quite often I have people say, I'd love to study the book of Daniel. I'd love to study the book of Zechariah. I'd love to study the book of Revelation. And then when we began studying that book, they said, oh no, I'm lost. I don't know that I can understand what it says because there's figurative language being used. In John 14 through 16, our Lord was trying to reveal what was going to happen to his disciples. And when you get to chapter 16, verses 16 and 17, he says, A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I go to the Father, they didn't get it. When you get to verse 25, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language. Oh, the Lord was using figures. Get down to verse 29. His disciples said to him, See now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. We get it now. We have to understand that when you use figurative language, it's easy for people to misunderstand. When he speaks, for instance, of it coming like a thief in the night, it's possible also that a person could be misrepresented. Someone can take what we say and twist it around and turn it and make it say something we never intended. Paul says, we don't want you to be troubled as if someone has provided for you a spirit, a word, or a letter as if it was from us. It was a forgery. Someone's telling you something. Let me ask you, have you ever had someone say, this person said this? And then when you begin to investigate, you go to that person. I didn't say that. Someone else alleged you said that. There were people who were saying that Paul was saying something that Paul never said. One of the things was that the day of Christ had come. That is, they had missed it somehow. I've tried to figure out how they might have twisted Paul's words. For the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Well, his thief must have slipped in 
stolen what he was going to steal and left, and I never noticed it. The Lord Jesus came, and somehow I just guess I never noticed it. When I go to 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says that our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom that was given him, has written to you as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, he's talking about the return of Christ, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstabled people twist to their own destructions as they do the rest of the scriptures. They're taking what Paul has said and they're twisting it. They're making it say something he never intended to say. When I go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 18, he's talking about people who have strayed concerning the truth saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some people. There were people who were teaching that it had passed, that it was behind them. Now, when I look at this coming, I have to recognize that this coming of Christ and this gathering together to him was exactly what Paul had spoken of in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. He talks about the Lord's descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ rising first. Then we who are alive and remain to the coming or remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Notice the Lord's coming, our gathering to Him. Does God know what day that will be? Absolutely He does. In fact, God has appointed that day. Just like when Jesus came the first time in Galatians 4 and verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The time was right. God sent Him. Acts 17, verse 31, He says, Because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. God's appointed that day. That day has been determined. And there will be an apostasy take place before the Lord comes again. That's exactly what he said there in verse 3. He says that there must first be a falling away. It wasn't just to the Thessalonians that Paul had spoken that. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 beginning with verse 1, the Spirit says expressly in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. He talks about some of the things they would do. Verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. We know from 1 John 2 and verse 18 that he said, Little children, it is the last hour. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So the day is determined. But I pick up with the latter part of verse 3 and read through verse 12. And I realize that Paul will describe this falling away in some great detail. Listen as he describes this man of sin who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. 
Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining that what may be re- what, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they receive not a love of the truth that they may be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they all should believe a lie that they all might be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. For just a moment, let me pull out some of these descriptive details. He's called the man of sin. Sin is a transgression of God's law. It's lawlessness. And he uses that phrase repeatedly. He's called the son of perdition. The word perdition means to be destroyed. He's destined for destruction. He opposes. That is, he is an adversary. He exalts himself. Puts himself in the position of God. Claims the prerogatives of God. He sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, I know everybody in their mind is, well, who is this? Who's he talking about? Well, when you start looking through the Bible, you find certain things being pulled out and you start seeing that whether he is called the man of sin, the son of perdition, the antichrist, he is the one that represents an opposition to God and his plan. In 1 John 2, 18, We've already taken note of that. 2 John, verse 7, he says, There are many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. I could spend a lot of time. In fact, there's a part of me that would love to go back and draw some parallels, if you will. I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but to point out to you that in Daniel chapter 11, There's the picture of one who brings an abomination of desolation. And he talks about how he exalts himself to a position. He's talking about Antiochus IV Epiphanes, uh, who was one of the rulers that followed Alexander the Great. When you get to the book of Matthew, chapter 24, and verse 15, and he says, And when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, know that its destruction is near. He's saying this is similar. Well, there's a, there's a similarity here in the sense of there have been men who would rise themselves. And again, I'm not going to read all that. I'd encourage you to take some time to read it. Some see the man of sin, the son of perdition, as just the personification of evil. 
I don't think that's specific enough to meet the demands of this passage. Some people see it as the Roman government, but I don't think that, again, meets the description here. Most of the scholars consider this to be a reference to what became the Roman Catholic Church and its papacy. For just a moment, let me explain to you what happened after the end of the, really the middle of the first, the first century. What you have is you have congregations which according to the directions of 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, were overseen by elders, bishops, pastors, all referring to the same group of men. However, as things began to develop, they began to elevate one of those men to being chief. They referred to him as a bishop. And then they began to elect among themselves to have one over a group of churches. And he became a presiding bishop. After that, they began to take all of these various groups, which later came to be known as dioceses, And they elected one universal bishop, and he was actually then called the Pope. And you see the departure that took place from that. Well, why would you call this the Catholic papacy? Well, notice this was the result of an apostasy that began in the first century. Verse 7 says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I can go to passages like Acts chapter 20 and verse 29 where Paul says, From among your own selves will men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. We can see in this passage that this one accepts worship. I can show you a photo of bowing down before a man, kissing his ring, offering him worship in spite of the fact that Peter tells Cornelius, stand up, I myself am also a man. No man on the face of this earth is worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship. There are those who are referred to as father in the sense that you give them a spiritual title, you give them a spiritual authority, And Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 9, Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And then it speaks of all these powers, signs, and lying wonders from chapter 2, verse 9. And you may or may not be aware of the fact that the Catholic Church claims certain miracles is the way that they elevate certain people to be saints. But there's a restraint. There's something that's holding it back at this point. When Paul is writing, if you'll notice verse 5, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I told these things, and now you know what is restraining. Those people in that church understood that there was something holding this back. Now, That restraint was in effect in their day and would eventually be taken out of the way so that the Son of Man could, or the Son of Man of Sin would be revealed so people could see him for who he was. Something was standing in the way, but that standing in the way was going to be moved. Now, 
That's likely, and I'm going to tell you, I don't know, but I've got my opinion. It's likely pagan Rome. The Roman government was keeping this spiritual apostasy in check. People couldn't assume these places of authority because the government wouldn't allow them to do so. Some people think it's the Word of God that is keeping them from being uh, elevated at this point, but I don't. I, my personal views is I can't see that because the Word of God was not taken away. They say, well, the church, the Catholic church tried to remove the Word of God. The temptation that's in this passage and the lesson that I think is to be learned is there are people who will follow this because they have pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, there's a vulnerability in the church there at Thessalonica. There are people who can be deceived, who can be persuaded. And why would a person accept this? Look with me at verses 10 through 12. With all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive a love of the truth that they might be saved. They didn't love God enough. They didn't love His Word enough. And then you look at verse 12, that they all might be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's what's going to happen when you have people who will allure you and tempt you. They will put something in front of you. They'll put some pleasure in it and they'll say, Oh, shouldn't you want to do this? The man of sin, the son of perdition, This man of lawlessness is holding in front of people this temptation for pleasure. Now, very quickly, let's look at verses 13 through 17. But we're bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God the Father, who has loved us and given us an everlasting consolation, And good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. I think it's amazing that when we studied chapter 1, Paul said, we're bound to give God thanks for you. Chapter 2, we're bound to give God thanks for you. We're obligated. Good churches should be appreciated. Good brethren should be thanked for doing what is right. Good elders should be patted on the back for leading the congregation in the right way. He said, you have been chosen for salvation. You see, God looks and He says, I want to save these people. How many people did God want to save? 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, who would have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, 9, he's not willing that any should perish. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
But you see, God did that through the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. The truth's what's important. The truth's what makes you free, John 8, verse 32. Someone says, but not everybody accepts it. No. John 6, 44 and 45, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by God. Everybody's going to be taught. And they, therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not everybody's going to learn. Not everybody's going to come. And so Paul says, what I want you to do is stand fast. Be strong. Hold these traditions which we taught you either by the word we preached to you or by the letters we wrote to you. Hold on to that. Don't give up on it. And God will then provide good hope by grace. And what that will do, it will comfort our hearts. It will establish our works. You see, as you look at these devout people, congregations that hold on to God's truth and say, we're not letting go. We know what God has told us. And though others may come and try to lay before us temptations, try to divert us, try to deceive us, we won't accept that. So I bring it all together. How does one avoid the panic of twisted teaching? There's no need to get upset. There's no need to be troubled. You know what God's Word says. Hold on to that. Know that God has it under control. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows what's going to happen. He understood there will be a falling away. Hold on to the truth. And God will take care of the righteous in the end. So thankful that we had the opportunity to study this portion of God's Word today. It's such an invaluable portion of trying to persuade us to be strong, to be loyal, to be faithful to God because of what God provides in the end. This morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, everything is prepared for you. If you want to become a Christian today, there's a baptistry behind me. It's full of warm water. We have garments prepared. And so if you, this morning, want to become a New Testament Christian, we're going to sing this invitation song. And you come forward, sit up here on the front, say, I want to be a Christian. We'll allow you to state your confession of faith in Christ and then be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you're one of God's children and you've allowed the pleasures of sin to attract you, and to cause you to stumble and fall. Be thankful that God has provided you one more opportunity to correct it. You can come forward and we'll pray with you. Your soul is too important to allow this opportunity to pass. Would you come now while we stand and sing?